You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is a Sectarian Review podcast, a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We discuss culture, history, art, politics, and religion in order to better understand the systems and institutions that cloud our vision of this life. Keep up with the conversation and add to it by liking our Facebook page, following us on Twitter, and visiting our website at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to leave a nice rating and review at iTunes. And if you ever get the urge to join in for an episode or two, contact us with your ideas. Listeners make the best contributors. Now for the show. Hi, everybody. This is Danny Anderson, welcoming you to another episode of the show. As you may or may not know, I'm an assistant professor of English at uh, Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. In addition to that, I produce and host this show, and I have a very exciting episode to bring you today. Um, But before we get to that, I just want to say a couple of words. Uh, We're over a year into this show now, a couple dozen episodes down, and I just want to say what a pleasure it's been for me personally to get to talk to so many really amazing people about so many really interesting topics. And I'm really looking forward to the next year. Uh, and I want to point forward uh, to early in January sometime, Todd Pedler, uh, Drew Vantland, and I are going to have a, a show about Matthew Crawford's book from 2009 called Shop Class as Soulcraft. I'm uh, currently reading it as I'm on vacation, and I'm finding it to be really fascinating, and I can't wait to pick those guys' brains about it. I want to encourage any listeners who have read that or might be interested in reading it uh, to let us know what you think. Uh, Send some uh, feedback, some comments, some ideas to our Facebook page or the website or my email or whatever, and uh, let us know what you'd like to talk about what you'd like us to talk about as we discuss that. And uh, we'll be glad to get to those questions in that episode. I want to make this as interactive a show as possible. Uh, But with no further ado, I want to get to today's episode. So like I said, it's a really exciting opportunity that I recently had with Jay Eldred uh, to sit down and talk to the great historian, John Fea, who teaches history at uh, Messiah College, also in Pennsylvania. Now, uh, Professor Faya's work explicitly connects to a couple of our previous episodes. We had a show about David Barton, the evangelical historian, and Faya's name came up quite often as kind of an antidote to what Barton does. And in addition to that, we talked about, uh, also Jay and I, the Seven Mountain Dominionism over a couple of episodes, and Faya's ideas about the founding of America conflict with that uh, in in many interesting ways. So he has come up explicitly in a couple of episodes. So I was really excited to get uh, to talk to him in person uh, and dedicate a whole episode to his work. But implicitly also, he connects to a lot of the dots that we've laid out in this show. And so I want to uh, uh, thank him for his time and his uh cooperation and his willingness to come on the show and talk to us about what he does. Let me real quickly read you some of his bio from the Messiah website. John is a professor of American history and chair of the history department at Messiah. He is the author or editor of four books and his essays and reviews have appeared in a variety of scholarly and popular venues. He blogs daily at the way of improvement leads home. And he also has a podcast of that same title, which is excellent. And he lives in Mechanicsburg with his family. Um, And just on a kind of personal note, uh, 
Fea, uh, like me and like Jay, has been blocked on Twitter by uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. and probably among other people of that ilk. And so you know he's good people if, if that's the case. So um, I want to, uh, with no further ado, present the interview that Jay Eldred and I had with John Fea. And please enjoy. Your work is hugely influential and well-respected. Can you tell us about your scholarship, specifically what is The Way of Improvement Leads Home, and why should Christians take history seriously? Yeah, I always get that question, Jay, about The Way of Improvement Leads Home. What does it mean? What is it all about? Usually I just tell people to read the book. Um, as some <laughs> of you know, as some of you know, the title of my blog and my podcast uh, that we started last year comes from the title of my first book called The Way of Improvement Leads Home. And without going into, uh, you know, all the all the details of that book, it was a it was a biography, uh, really like a micro history of a farmer, son of a farmer in New Jersey who goes off uh, studies at the College of New Jersey in the 1770s, which, of course, is now Princeton and sort of pursues uh, a life outside of the rural confines of his um, sort of agrarian New Jersey home. So, you know, I, I describe this uh, character's name was Philip Vickers Fithian. He was a, he was actually wrote a, a very famous diary uh, about plantation life in 18th century Virginia. So a lot of early American historians know that diary. But, you know, he went off on this way of improvement, but on his way of improvement, he also uh, stayed very connected to uh, his roots, his homeland, uh, the the idea of a uh, sense of place and connectedness. So I think if there's a sort of philosophical meaning to the idea of the way of improvement leads home, it's really this kind of tension, I think, that many of us experience, this kind of tension uh, between mm-hmm. uh, ambition, cosmopolitanism, sort of making it in the world, but yet uh, also kind of being rooted, whether it be in a particular place, whether it be in a particular faith tradition, um, you know, these kinds of things that don't necessarily fit with, uh, you know, the, the, the progressive understanding of modern life. So there's always that tension, right, between the way, one's way of improvement and then their sort of local attachment uh, to to home. So I think that's the, you know, that's the kind of ideal behind uh, the way of improvement leads home. And I really flesh out those ideas. The book is not a book of theory. It's much more a book of, uh, you know, the way these ideas sort of play out in an ordinary life. I am a historian, after all, not a philosopher or a theorist in any way, shape or form. So uh, I think the second I think I think you asked and why should Christians take history seriously, um, you know, I would kind of reframe the question, you know, why, why should we not take it seriously? Um, yes. You know, it, in many ways, I think the study of the past, you know, provides us with context for our world today. Uh, it teaches us how to make arguments based on evidence, you know, which I think uh, if you just followed the political campaign, I think we could do some more work on that <laughs> in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, history is always at the core, at least, in, you know, I'm an American historian, so I'll talk about it in that context. It's always at the core of our civic understanding, you know, our civic identity. It's told it's it sort of tells us where we've been, where we want to go. Um, and, you know, as, as a Christian, it also is the sort of, you know, study of human beings. If, if you believe that human beings are God's 
highest form of creation if we are cre- indeed created in our image in his image rather sorry that was a that was a big slip uh, <laughs> you know created created in his image the, the sort of imago day if you will uh it reminds us uh you know of of uh you know that kind of sense of worth that all human beings have and and not only ourselves but the people we encounter in the world you know it it, it provides some kind of insight to uh i think it i think history uh, probably more than any other discipline sort of justifies a belief in human sinfulness uh, or even the ever-present need that we have for redemption. So so in the sense that history helps us understand the human condition, uh, in that sense, you know, why shouldn't we be taking it more seriously than we actually do? Um, yeah, I, I, if I could keep going on here, in a more immediate sense, I mean, in the context, again, of American history, uh, you know, if you are interested as a Christian in engaging with public life, and I think all of us to some degree uh, should be doing that in one way or another, you know, if you want to be responsible in the way that you use the past in this sort of public sphere, the public realm, um, you know, in some ways, the Christian right, uh, the whole agenda of the Christian right in America today is an agenda uh, about history. It's rooted in history and what the history of America should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, in some ways, uh, uh, you know, if you have a political or cultural or religious agenda about the nation, uh, it's often natural to go into the past to try to uh, define what you mean by the nation. So, you know, I personally think that this whole idea of uh, America as a Christian nation or Christian nationhood is a, you know, it's a very, I think it's a wrongheaded concept. I think in those who try to promote the, this, um, you know, it's a, this faulty view, I would say, and they really embarrass themselves. And as Christians, I think they hurt the cause of the kingdom of God. They hurt the public witness of the church. Uh, but what we've learned or what, what many conservative evangelicals, I think, learned during the culture wars was that, you know, we need the founding fathers on our side. We need American history on our side. We need the American Revolution and the Constitution on our side. So we sort of force our own political agendas in the 21st century, the late 20th century onto the 18th century, mm. not realizing mm-hmm. how silly it looks uh, to unbelievers who, who are smart about these things. So in the process, we're trying to win the culture wars. Uh, and, in, and in the process of trying to win the culture wars, we sort of sacrifice opportunities at actually reaching the culture uh, with the gospel, because I think we're so sloppy about our historical you know, assumptions. Um, so again, I mean, history can do all these things. You know, this whole, this whole Trump slogan, right? Make America great again. Uh, that is in some ways a historical statement, right? I mean, what does mm-hmm. it mean to make America great again? Right. You're implying that at some point it was great. <laughs> and I think what the historian does is kind of help you uh, to understand, well, here's the way it actually was back then. Uh, you know, do you, do you think it's mm-hmm. great or don't you think it's great? We can then have that kind of moral or ethical debate. But I think the historian must immediately step in on, on kind of political slogans like this and say, you know, well, let's look at the 1950s or the Reagan era or wherever. You know, I don't have, I'm not quite sure what Trump means when he says make America great again. Mm-hmm. What sort of what sort of. Uh, um, sort of time period he's talking about but clearly he has a certain time period in mind when things were great and uh i'm sure that my african-american friends or my female friends and so forth might have a very different view on 
whether America was great in those periods than mm -hmm. perhaps Donald Trump and his followers do. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I think, you know, for all these reasons, history, the study of history has to be at the core of, of you know, our democracy. Yeah, and that's, uh, if I could jump in right here, um, yeah. that's sort of the difference between nostalgia and history, right? I mean, what he's drawing on is a nostalgia, which doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily rooted in any factual circumstance. It's sort of a feeling one has about the past. And um, too often, I think, um, Christian historians, as we've talked about on this podcast, Jay and I have had shows about mm -hmm. David Barton and, and, and whatnot, um, who we'll get Christian into. nationalism. Christian, yeah, we'll get into that a little bit later. So yeah, we, yeah, uh, yeah uh, this is the, the problem that we've tried to identify uh, in previous shows that we've um, done. And the answer that you gave is actually um, identifying a political important importance for studying history as a, as an ethical citizen, let alone a Christian. And so uh, I would like to get into the next question then. Um, as a culture, we're grappling with a historic election. Uh, just on the surface with the Electoral College popular vote split, the specter of possible foreign interference in the election, etc. There's just so much to untangle. And then when you add to that the underlying social and economic causes for the great political rift we now see, I feel like historians will be unpacking our moment for the next century. Uh, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the election in a historical context and what your thoughts are about where we are? Yeah, I think this election more than any other has sort of tested my tested my sort of convictions about how to you know about the importance of thinking historically. I mean, I've tried to get, you know, readers on my blog and other people I talk to 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 kind of think historically about this election. But that can often be a dicey thing, especially politics, you know, can often get in the way of uh, clear minded analysis of these kinds of things. And I'm sure I've been guilty of that. I've been, at least been accused of being guilty of that. <laughs> Not only rightly, sometimes maybe rightly, sometimes wrongly, in my opinion. But but, you know, that it's a tough thing to do. Um, so. You know, if we think about this in historical perspective, right, I mean, you could say, for example, uh, that this election is historic because there was a, a woman running. Hillary Clinton is the first woman to major party candidate, uh, female to run. Or we could say it's historic because, uh, you know, Trump was this populist candidate from the world of business and reality TV. And he tapped into this sort of large swath of uh was the word I'm looking for? Sort of disgruntled voters that were, you know, that the media or the Republican and Democratic parties hadn't uh, tapped into. They didn't know that they were out there. Uh, you know, when Trump first appeared, uh, you had a lot of historians making analogies, right? Trump is Hitler. Trump is George Wallace. You heard a lot mm -hmm. the, the the 1968 kind of segregationist candidate. Uh, Trump is Andrew Jackson, I heard a lot. And I even, you know, there were all kinds of these comparisons or these analogies. And, um, you know, I think these analogies are very interesting. Uh, sometimes they work, but any good historian must also, you know, kind of be aware of their limitations. I mean, Hitler, Wallace, Jackson, I've even heard Reagan. Hmm. You know, all these people lived in very different times and places and were facing, you know, a host of very different issues than we do today. So, you know, these analysis, these analogies sometimes are helpful, but I don't think they offer a kind of silver bullet for explaining what Trump's going to do 
uh, in the next four years, assuming the Electoral College votes him in, this which that's a whole other issue. Um, so, you know, I often get asked this question, you know, what is the historical significance of Trump's victory? And as a historian, my entry is usually something like, you know, I don't know, you know, ask me in 10 or 20 years or, you know, you, 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 you mentioned you mentioned Danny centuries, right? You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> you know, better yet, ask American political historians 100 years from now what the historical significance uh, is. But you know, I think what what I think if I could sort of take off my historian's hat and kind of reflect on the present and perhaps the future for a second. I mean, you know, this this uh, this election, like most elections, you know, have has sort of challenged us to think about where we are as a nation or as a democracy. And I think it's fair to say that we we may be in trouble again. Uh, again, I say again because this is not the first time American democracy has been in trouble. So I'm a little bit resistant to all of those people who say, you know, it's never been this bad before, you know, <laughs> and those kinds of things. But you know, I say again because uh, you know, you know, we've had the Civil War, we've had you know other kinds of major. Uh, the 1920s and so forth, mm -hmm. when the culture was seriously divided. Um, so, you know, Trump's rhetoric, I think, you know, sometimes doesn't match reality. I mean, I, I love that Trump referred to Lincoln's second inaugural address in his acceptance speech when he talked about uh, binding up the nation's wounds, I think was his phrase. You know, you, you I, I must admit, I heard that statement and kind of, you know, rolled my eyes a little bit in light of everything he had done in the campaign. But, you know, that was a sort of an appeal to history, or at least his speechwriters uh, made an appeal to history. Um, so I think I think in that sense, you know, it's time for once again, a sort of renewed civic understanding about the things that bring us together and not the things that sort of tear us apart. So I think, again, back to my answer to your original quite your first question, you know, as human beings, this might start with a celebration of, of human dignity and, and the, the sort of common humanity that we all share, you know. I've been, if you've been reading my blog lately, I've been blogging a lot about Reinhold Niebuhr's idea mm -hmm. of the spiritual discipline against resentment. Yeah. You know, I've been a moral man in a moral society again. I've been going back to that to try to make sense of sort of how to move forward in all of this. Um, you know, so, so I think, you know, as a Christian, I think moving forward also requires an understanding that individuals and societies are broken and flawed. And, you know, I'm not quite sure that certain forms of identity politics are going to help us move forward. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that sort of doubling down on our racial, ethnic, gender, political, sexual orientation sort of identities is the best way to move forward uh, right now. I just think that kind of resentment and playing the victim and so forth is is, is that anger, if you will, is is not necessarily life giving. It's not. It's not, uh, you know, a way to kind of continue to cultivate uh, democracy in this country. So, you know, I could I could go on and on about uh, the sort of historical significance of all of this, but um, you know, there there's some thoughts for you to play with. Well, if I could follow up real quick, and then I'll sure. let, I'll let Jay shoot out the next question, but. Um, uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, I know that you're not a scholar of media per se, but right. I mean, we are in a, a, a different kind of media environment, and particularly on the left. So much of the political thought is controlled by late night comedians and such, yeah. and, which, which that works really well with the identity politics. Right. <laughs> and so yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on the role of the way we mediate the world and uh, in, in, that has in what the dynamic you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, 
back to the historical sort of, you know, what's new about this, what's unique. I think social media has played a role in this uh, campaign more than any other campaign, I think, in American history uh, in terms of uh, contributing uh, to the kind of kind of divisive culture, uh, fake news, you know, mm -hmm. uh, all kind of stuff. Again, reasons why we need more sort of historical thinking and humanities-based thinking more broadly. I know you're an English guy, Danny, so yeah. I don't want to... I, want, I don't want to make it sound like uh, history is the way to solve all the world's problems. No, we're on the same there team other, here. <laughs> there are other disciplines that do this well, too. But, um, you know, I, I, I think I think the you know, the media, I think the media has has in some ways created uh, Donald Trump. Um, you know, I, I'm a big CNN fan. I really like watching CNN. I like their cast of characters and so forth. But, the, but you know, the, I think the critiques of CNN kind of, you know, helping Donald Trump uh, become who he is are uh, are um, pretty accurate mm. in some ways. Uh, I'm not sure that answers your I'm not sure that's what you're getting at uh, on some of this. But um, maybe you can follow up again. No, no, no. I just wanted to. I mean, I just it just feels to me that the way that we conduct our discourse is so dominated by a certain kind of media. And so the, tw the you talked about CNN, all of those yeah. cable news uh, networks are driven by this 24 hour news cycle that something has to be on the air. Right. And yeah. so, yeah. Uh, and, and, and a person like Donald Trump, who's sort of the master of reality television can tap yeah. into that very easily. And I, I feel like that's yeah. a part of the story. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think the fact that he is a re reality television TV star, I think Twitter, you know, I mean, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, with the media, uh, especially those who cover the presidency in the next four years when Trump seems to, you know, simply be bypassing the, the, the normal ways of getting out his message because he has access to these social media accounts like Twitter mm. to, you know, I mean, it's amazing. You watch CNN now. And or any news network, and they're like sitting there, you know, commenting on, okay, well, now we know that we know that Trump is going to make this or this uh, cabinet appointment tomorrow morning at nine o'clock because he just tweeted it. I mean, you know, we're in, <laughs> mm -hmm. we're in, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a press release or it wasn't, you know, it didn't come across the AP wire or something. It wasn't based on sort of reporting. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, Trump tweeted it out. So now we know, you know, so we're on, we're on sort of new ground here and it'll be interesting again to see how it all plays out during his uh, presidency. Hmm. I know on um, on Twitter you've started using the hashtag Age of Trump or something similar. <laughs> and gotten and, in trouble for it. <laughs> I was just going to say, you've taken some flack for that. And when you first started tweeting it, the, I teach high school history, and I started pushing back against it. Yeah. But the answer that you just gave helped, really helped me understand what you mean by that. And, yeah, thank you how for so, that. How so, Jay? I'm curious. Well, why I under, now understand or why I was pushing back? Or both. No, why? Why it's why what I just said makes sense now. I guess that I spend so much time in the past, I never really stop to think about how today is different than yesterday. If yeah. that makes sense. Sometimes, sure. yeah, we spend too much time in the archives and not too not enough time in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. My use of that hashtag Age of Trump. I mean, for some of your listeners who are probably unfamiliar with the what happened. I mean, it was it really is a small little sort of Twitter feud that not many people would uh, have followed unless they're following me. Um, John Wilson, a man who I deeply respect, and some of your listeners are probably familiar with it, the periodical he kind of used to edit, uh, Books and Culture, um, which I think was the preeminent kind of uh, uh, journal of. Mm -hmm. 
evangelical intellectual life, which sadly it, it is it no it is no longer. But but John was pushing me about me being sort of irresponsible in using the hashtag Age of Trump as if I was somehow trying to create some kind of a new historical era. Uh, a which I wasn't. And then B, um, it was a debate over, you know, so so Trump, right, was associated with uh, lying to the public or making up stories or or the Access Hollywood, right? You know, yeah. sort of lewd kind of sexual public behavior. So so he accused me of and I think there's some might be some truth to this. I mean, he accused me of whenever there was lewd sexual public behavior or whatever, wherever there was not telling the truth or whatever, you know, I chalked it all up to the age of Trump as if people didn't do this before. Right. <laughs> so, so I think that's a fair, a fair criticism. I mean, I'm just using that. It's more fun than anything else. I'm just kind of using the hashtag to suggest that, you know, there are certain things now going on in culture and maybe I don't have a smoking gun, you know, to prove it. You know, in other words, this racist remark was made at this high school uh, because of what Donald Trump said about this or that issue regarding race. You know, I, it's hard to connect the dots sometimes unless the sort of person committing the, 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 the crime or the racist, uh, you know, the racist, you know, thing, um, is, is, uh, deliberately saying, right. Donald Trump inspired me to do this. Um, so it's so I but I think there are I think there is a sense in which I mean things have suddenly become more kind of acceptable in the last year uh, than you know perhaps were before Trump but we could debate that but um, you know I think that's part of kind of uh, I think that's part of kind of engaging uh, you know the the sort of present day culture yeah. I wonder if I wonder. Um, in the past we might have called this like this the zeitgeist, if this is just another way of talking about. Maybe, some... yeah. I mean, that's what I, but that's what I mean by it. Danny. Right, right. I mean, that's, that's what I, that's all I'm doing. I'm not trying to say like, this is the age of Jackson again, or <laughs> this is the age of the middle ages. Or the, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah I, that's I, all. I'm just, yeah. I, and John, John, you know, as a friend and, and, you know, he gets, he gets, you know, kind of upset about these things. Yeah. So let's just leave it at that. Well, I, I do want to make a plug. If you're not following uh, John Faya on Twitter, you're really missing out on my favorite Twitter account actually right now. <laughs> um, oh, awesome. Awesome. I, it's, uh, it's informative, entertaining, and, uh, and, uh, and I love it. So, yeah. Good. Uh, Jay, you want to take the next question? Sure. Apart from the politics, the election has caused a massive identity crisis within evangelicalism, which you've written about extensively on your blog almost from the day after the election, if not a few days before. Right, right. And you were just mentioned in a recent Atlantic piece by Jonathan Merritt, and we were just wondering, as of our recording date, what are your thoughts on where evangelicalism as a movement stands? I'm glad you said on our recording date, right? December, right. December... Uh, December 14th, 14th, 2006. It's, it's good to put, it's good to clarify this Jay, cause it could change tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. The, if, if people have followed your blog, they'll know that. <laughs> exactly. No, I've tried to, I've tried to nuance things and, you know, um, you know, I've tried to, I've tried to sort of, uh, go back and sort of, you know, correct some things that I quickly said in terms, you know, in anger, especially some things I tweeted on election night, which seems to, the media seems to have, got a hold of. But I mean, I think it goes without saying, if you're familiar with my work, if you're familiar with my blog and my sort of public writings, um, 
you know, I'm deeply troubled by the fact that over 80 percent of white evangelicals. And again, this number has been uh, sort of uh, um, criticized. This number has been kind of nuanced a little bit in interesting ways by some bloggers. But I still think it's, it's still a significant number of white evangelicals uh, supported uh, Donald Trump. So, you know, that troubles me at, at the heart of this. or What troubles me even more is the kind of lack of serious Christian thinking behind uh, some of the, especially the big name endorsements uh, of Donald Trump mm-hmm. in the evangelical community. And, you know, I'm thinking here of people like uh, Robert Jeffress, the pastor of that huge mega church, Baptist Church, First Baptist in Dallas, or of course, perhaps the most celebrated has been Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of uh, Liberty University. You know, both of these guys endorsed Trump in the GOP primary. You know, when there was still kind of you know, viable Christian conservative candidates out there. Again, so, you know, I'm not saying I would agree with all these viable Christian conservative candidates, but, you know, people like Rubio and Cruz or even Carson or, or even Kasich, you know, was, were still out there. Um, but yet these these guys endorsed Trump. Uh, you know, Falwell, for instance, Falwell's argument for Trump. Are you guys okay? I'm yeah. hearing a lot oh, of... No, no, you're great. Okay. Um, yeah, I think Falwell Jr.'s argument for Trump, you know, at least as I understood it, is basically something like, you know, Christians should vote for Trump because he'll make America great again. <laughs> you know, right? I, mean, I mean, there's no kind of deep kind of theological, political, theological kind of analysis to that. Jeffress, art, Jeffress I debated Jeffress on an NPR show uh, a while back. You know, I think his argument is slightly more sophisticated. I mean, he, he believes that government should have, a, at least he tries to make a biblical argument that government should have a very limited role uh, in kind of promoting the public good. Basically, he just wants a government that's going to protect his rights and protect him, protect him from outside uh, invaders, right? ISIS or whoever that may be. So, you know, in some ways, there's been a lot of Christian thinkers through through history. Uh, Martin Luther comes to mind as the most prominent who actually thought about government in very similar ways to the way that Jeffress uh, thinks about government. So, so at least I get that, you know, um, you know. And then there's, you know, and then there's, I think most of the evangelicals who supported Trump uh, were those who, you know, were, were bought into the Supreme Court argument, right? Yeah. That, that Trump will deliver the Supreme Court. And again, for me, I'm sympathetic with that, with the, with the, with the sort of spirit behind that. You know, I'm, I'm sympathetic with pro-lifers. I'm sympathetic with people who are concerned about religious liberty. I think this religious liberty question is actually huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're at, a, we're at a sort of ideological standstill right now in this question between people who uh, want to uphold uh, their deepest convictions about some of these moral issues and then others who see uh, the way in which Christians uphold their moral convictions, whether it be marriage or whatever, uh, are as discrimination. I mean, there's I don't know how you get past that impasse. And I, I'm, I'm going to let sort of my political philosopher friends and my legal friends, you know, <laughs> help me understand that. But at least I, I you know, I can get that. Um, you know, I think there's there's uh, I think a lot of issues are at stake for the evangelical 
community, however you're going to define that going forward. I mean, Trump's win shows that the Christian rights playbook, which was designed by people like Jerry Falwell and then later Pat Robertson and Ralph Reed, this playbook for how conservative evangelicals should engage in politics is not dead. I think that's what it tells us. Um, you know, and maybe this is its last stand. I don't know, right? But it's but it's it's certainly not dead. When push comes to shove, you know, abortion and the Supreme Court is still for most evangelicals the bottom line. Um, so I think that's that's one of the things as I reflect on this kind of historically and look for the roots of this evangelical support for Trump. Um, I also find very disturbing the way many evangelical leaders sort of cozied up to Trump. You know, I think they I think the church and evangelicals especially have sacrificed, you know, for lack of a better term, let's call it the, the prophetic role of Christianity or the prophetic role of the church uh, in society. You know, and some might argue it was already surrendered a long time ago, this kind of prophetic role. Um, I'm not convinced Trump cares one lick about evangelicals apart from politics he's 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 played them in many ways like political pawns i mean we had uh this just popped into my head here we had ross doubt that new york times columnist uh, on campus at messiah college earlier this month and he he described i love how he described trump he described described trump as a kind of strong man for evangelicals who you know so evangelicals flock to the strong man for the protection of their religious liberties Right. Um, and then he compared that to the way this, the way Syrians today flock to Assad mm. in order to, for him to protect them against ISIS or whatever other sort of forces are out there. And I thought it was a really, really interesting comparison from a largely conservative, uh, anti-Trump conservative, but conservative columnist. So, you know, I mean, to, to come back fully to your question, I mean, as as far as the evangelicalism as a movement, I'm, I'm afraid very much like the nation, it's it's divided. Um, you know, it's it's perhaps divided more than that. Um, but I think Trump has really exacerbated the kind of uh, the the rifts in the movement, rifts that maybe have been around for a long time between sort of more moderate evangelicals and conservative slash fundamentalists and progressive evangelicals. Uh, I can understand why folks are abandoning the label. I mean, as as you mentioned, Jay, I thought about it as well. Um, one thing I won't abandon, however, is, you know, sort of an understanding of Christian faith that's rooted in things like, you know, the, the centrality of cross, the need for conversion, repentance, sin, and the necessity of Christian witness in the world. Uh, the, the, the Bible as an authoritative guide for, for living. You know, you can call that, what I just said, all those theological ideas, you can call whatever you want. Um, someone who, you know, someone who believed these things used to be called an evangelical, but, you know, I think that may have some by, uh, by, the, by the whole election. Yeah, that was one thing. I read Merritt's article, and um, the one that mentioned you uh, this week, and, um, I, I, and his argument is that, that evangelicals who are appalled by Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham and these folks should not just abandon that label to them. Um, and I, I, I vacillate on that. I, a couple episodes yeah. ago, sort of, I, I disclaimed it myself on this show and, and I don't, right. I honestly don't know where I stand on it. I, I don't know that you can recover it from being a purely political uh, as a, a label of pure political signification. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I attend. I, I think I, I, I tried to nuance Merritt's piece on my blog. You know, I tried to go back to a post I wrote after I calmed down a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's sort of late, no, mid to late November, maybe mid-November. You know, I mean, I still attend a church that would be, you know, kind of described as evangelical. I attend a, a big evangelical free church here on the west shore of, uh, of um, the Susquehanna River. Um, you know, I mean, to me... To me, you know, I'm not sure how useful the label is anymore. I mean, I'll still identify myself that way when I think it's appropriate, but I'll do it with a, I'll do it with a lot more care now. Mm. No, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, well, this may or may not be related to the conversation. Um, I think it is because you're talking about a, a, a capacity for critical thought, I think is implicit yeah. in a lot of what we're talking about. So, um, you've had a lot of insightful thoughts on the decline of hu the humanities. We've talked, we've touched on this, uh, already in higher education, Christian colleges included. Uh, can you talk about that and why it's important to maintain that presence? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I'll talk about it specifically here from from the perspective of, of where I sit at a Christian college. And I, I think you're right, Danny. I think it goes back to some of these things I said earlier about our kind of political situation. I mean, you know, as a Christian, uh, I think that the kind of community that we kind of want to build and the way we can contribute to society, you know, whether you want to call it King's beloved community or whatever, um, the kind of community I think the democracy that we want to we want to cultivate um, ultimately right has to be found in I think in some ways it's a spiritual problem right I mean in some ways you know we 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 need to rely upon uh, the Holy Spirit in our lives it, uh, uh, the resources of the Christian faith to be able to uh, engage in a kind of empathetic loving way within our culture uh, something that we certainly uh, have lost in the context of the culture wars. Um, you know, so there, I think there are spiritual resources that Christians can draw upon, but I also think the human, so I, in other words, my point here is I would never put like the humanities and their role in, in, in sort of creating community sort of above, uh, the kind of spiritual resources there. But having said that, uh, with that caveat, I also think the humanities can serve some of these ends to strengthen uh, our democracy. I mean, if a, a democracy, of course, requires citizens mm -hmm. um, and citizens are not just people who vote, but they're also people. I understand the way the founders understood citizenship and really people throughout much of the 19th and, and sort of the, the first half of the 20th century maybe understood citizenship. Uh, citizens are people who are curious about the world. They understand uh, the greater good, uh, not just their own self-interest. Um, citizenship requires those who are willing to talk to people, engage in conversations uh, with people who have different ideas. Um, I've, I've argued this in uh, at least one of my books, uh, that citizenship and democracy requires empathy. You know, we need to learn how to walk in the shoes of others, understand the world from someone else's perspective, not just our own. So it seems to me that these are the kind of skills that we need in America right now. And they're, all, they're also the ways of thinking and sort of being in the world that the humanities teaches us. So, so, I mean, the, the call, this gets back to, you know, my original answer to one of Jay's questions at the beginning of the podcast, right? Why, sh why should, why should we not be studying 
or why shouldn't we be studying history, right? But I think here's the here's the here's where uh, the problem lies, right? Sadly, at least to me, um, most Christians no longer seem interested in this kind of humanities-based education. Yeah, I mean, if you go to sort of evangelical Christian colleges today. Um, you know, maybe you could speak about this in terms of Catholic institutions, Danny, I don't know, but they pay, certainly pay lip service uh, to the humanities and their mission statements and their admissions materials. But, you know, the question here is follow the money, right? <laughs> yep. Follow the follow the programming. Um, you know, today, most Christian colleges are developing more and more professional programs, mm-hmm. um, which are not bad, but these are kind of programs that prepare people with skills for our capitalist economy. Uh, and we need them, but they don't prepare us. And I've said this multiple times. They don't prepare us for living in a democracy because a democracy requires much more. You know, even even in the 15 years I've been working at a, in an evangelical Christian college, I've sensed over the course of that time a sort of different ethos at the place uh, about the humanities. Um, and a lot of this, frankly, is tied to what people who attend these colleges want and what their parents want. Um, you know, Christian kids come to Christian colleges less and less because they want to pursue an examined life or engage in the big questions of life. They they're rarely asking things like what is true. What does it mean to flourish as a human being? What is beautiful? Um, what does it mean to be a citizen? What is my duty and my obligation in a democratic society? What is a just society? You know, these questions are still being asked, I think, in our classrooms you know, by by people like me and others, um, but they no longer pervade the kind of ethos of a Christian liberal arts college. I've written a little bit about this, especially in light of watching my daughter's college make college visits last year. I mean, heck, we at the school where I teach, we don't even have a student newspaper anymore. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's I think there's no public sphere. There's no place to converse about ideas. There's there's no place to argue and debate. There's no place to sort of cultivate the kind of conversations that make a democratic society possible. And, and you know, for college students, there's this is where they get their practice in sort of doing this. So, uh, you know, I know I'm going a little bit on a rant here, but this has been this has kind of been what what has uh, what has really troubled me about the state of um, Christian higher education uh, and the role that humanities can play in sort of helping Christians to, rather than fighting the culture wars, to kind of kind of contribute uh, in a more meaningful and more effective way to to democratic society. Yeah, well, that's a rant that I've been on myself, and I was glad to hear Same. someone else make it. <laughs> we all are, right? Yeah. Yes, I, I am cheering. Guys, come on. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I'm sharing your answer. <laughs> and it reminds me a great deal of, um, I think, the, the the spirit behind James K. A. Smith's Desiring the Kingdom um, sure. is sort of trying to talk about um, Christian ed as something, not just a, a sanctified version of state school, right? And so, yeah. yeah. And we're really, we're really up against, um, you know, I think, these forces that that are sort of pushing and, you know, we could argue where the root of this is. I mean, Christian colleges can only take what they get, you know, in terms of students. Right. But, you know, we're really up against these kinds of market forces, I would call them, that are sort of starting to drive uh, uh, what we do even at a Christian institution or church related. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, John, um, Jay has a couple of questions for you uh, that uh, he came up, and I'm going to let him take the next two because I think they're really interesting, and he's yeah. the perfect person to deliver them. So go, go ahead, Jay. 
Okay. Um, we talked previously about uh, your Twitter presence, and over the last couple of months, there have been different debates online about the role of academics on social media. Yeah. Could you, could you share your thoughts on being a public historian or at least being a historian in the public eye? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, there's there's uh, I think most in my I can only speak to my field of history. I think I think um, there's a generational divide. I think I think I think um, I'm 50 years old. I'm one of the more older uh, sort of tweeters out there. now. I think <laughs> social media people uh, who actually see this as a as a as an excellent forum for uh for engaging the public with history um so so i i just see it as in, i think people who are older than me uh sort of hesitate uh to see this as a as a way of doing it or somehow it cheapens their scholarly work or their true vocations and so forth i mean i think you know i talk a lot about this uh i've talked a lot about this with historians over the years i've done conference presentations on it been on panels and so forth you know i think i think you know, I'm I'm passionate about uh, bringing history uh, and good history to um, as many people as possible. And if these kind of avenues like Twitter and like Facebook and blogging can do that, then that's great. Now, I realize I realize that this then is an understanding of the academic vocation that is not the one that I learned or that most of us learn in, in graduate school. Right? We're not <laughs> trained in our Ph.D. programs to do this kind of public engagement. So in that sense, I'm really forging. You know, I've I've written my monographs. I've written, you know, I've done I've had my name on the cover of five books uh, that are mostly university press books. I've I've published in you know where I'm supposed to publish so I've done all that sort of work to to secure my at least I think I'm, I've secured a sort of voice in the academic community but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to chart out a a kind of a different path a sort of alternative vision of what an academic career might look like and being at a place like Messiah College where there is not that kind of pressure to uh, function like in an, a research one kind of environment um, I think I'm able I'm able to do that. So uh, so, you know, I, I, I turn to these places to try to call attention to, to links and articles and so forth that I think are worth mentioning and worth people considering. Uh, again, trying to sort out the, the good from the bad uh, when we think about the role of history in public life. I'm um, speaking of uh, promoting people worth considering. I know that I'm. Um, both you and I have drawn the attention and somewhat ire of Eric Metaxas and David Barton. Um, <laughs> what would what would some maybe less block happy people on Twitter or on social media be that you would recommend following? I think there's some great people. I mean, for for Christians, um, you know, for your Christian listeners. Uh, you know, one of my favorite Christian tweeters is the Pietist Schoolman, although I think he's on Twitter. I think he's also one of the bloggers on the Christian Humanist Network or yeah. whatever you guys call it. He is. Chris Gertz uh, is a wonderful Christian uh, Christian tweeter who turns to twi uh, Twitter very well. Um, other people that I like to I like to turn to that are maybe not necessarily from the uh, sort of Christian world. Uh, I like the historian, American historian from Princeton, Kevin Cruz. Uh, mm -hmm. K-R-U-S-E, when he tweets about um, uh, especially uh, post-World War II politics, um, I'm often checked. You know, these are the kind of Twitter feeds that I often check, right, that don't just come across my feed, but I go out of my way to, to read these people's uh, feeds. I love Yoni Applebaum 
who is a uh, the bureau chief at the Atlantic, but he's also a trained historian. He has a PhD in history from Brandeis. Um, you know, his historical perspective on current events is great. Um, I like some of the uh, I like some of the uh, non-historian Christian uh, tweeters. Uh, you know, I, I, I often people like Alan Noble, uh, for example, um, you know, does a nice job on Twitter in kind of reflecting on uh, some of these uh, some of these uh, political issues and how Christians should respond. Just those are just a few that I often go to uh, that you know perhaps your listeners might find uh, might find useful. I'm feeling a lot better about my feed now because I already follow most of these. <laughs> Excellent. Too, Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, did Kevin Cruz, did he write uh, One Nation Under God? One Nation Under God, yeah, which I is think, an excellent didn't, book. I think we talked about him, Danny. Oh, okay. Right, right. Under that previous po- podcast, right. Um, well, I know you're a busy man, <laughs> John Faye. I really appreciate the uh, you taking the time. I do want to take a second, though, um, just the personal thing. You're a New Jersey guy, right? So you're a big Springsteen That's fan. Right. And so uh, have you read the new book, uh, his, his autobiography? Or You know, I've not only read it, but I actually I'm just finishing up a piece, which I hope will come out in the online journal The Point. Uh, in the next couple weeks on uh, on Bruce's America kind of thing. I think that, that that's the working title. They may change that. But yeah, I've read it. It's And, and it's wonderful. Nice. Um, I haven't gotten to it yet, but uh, it's definitely on my list. I, I yeah. Just uh, to make another plug for your podcast, you did an interview, and I forgive me, I can't remember with who, about uh, about Springsteen, and it was, it was just a fascinating um, political biography of him, and, and I really, really appreciated it. So. Yeah, we talked to um, we talked to Mark Dolan, who wrote a uh, major trade biography of Springsteen called Bruce Springsteen and the Future of Rock and Roll. And again, that was one of our favorites on the podcast that we that we did in that first season. Yeah. Um, Jay, do you have any uh, wrap up questions? I don't think so. Okay. Um, well, I do want to give you a chance. So to find uh, your work, there's uh, The Way of Improvement Leads Home is both a blog and a podcast that you can find on right. iTunes and, and all that, right? Um, what's your most recent book? My most recent book is A History of the American Bible Society. It's called The Bible Cause. And then the subtitle is A History of the American Bible Society. It looks at this 200-year-old organization. Uh, it sounds like an institutional history, which it is, but it also kind of uses that institution to kind of look at uh, the role of the Bible and uh, American Christianity in the last 200 years. So, yeah, the Bible cause makes a great Christmas gift. <laughs> it's on my list. There you go. <laughs> my mom's always looking for me to for me to put stuff on my Amazon wish list. Maybe I'll add that one now. So Yeah, good. And I should also add that my book, um, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, just came out in a second edition. So uh, oh, I added a new uh, forward, a new uh, introduction, and a new conclusion. So I thought mm. I'd throw that out there, too. Well, John Faye, thank you so much uh, for taking the yes, time to join you. us. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, Hey, this has been a lot of fun, guys, and, and thanks for inviting me, and uh, keep podcasting. Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> this is my version of your Twitter, right? So, yes. All right. There you go. There <laughs> so, you go. Very good. Thank um, you. Thank you, Mr. Faye. Take care. Okay. Have a great day, guys. You too. Um, Jay, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay. Is John still there? Okay, he, he seems to be gone. Okay. Um, I thought maybe we could uh, just sort of like rehash some highlights. Thinking about putting this at the beginning kind of as a 
right here's what we talked about and here's what we hope you look forward to sort of thing um i don't know how you want to begin this i really didn't think about that this is just sort of a brainstorm i had you there yeah okay i just it just had you cut off really quick there oh, um i'm sorry i don't know i mean how do you pick a highlight out of all that yeah well the first thing that, that I want to talk about uh, that I really enjoyed his little rant uh, was the oh, yeah. um, um, the Christian college neglect yes. of the humanities. Um, I know. To me, that I, I, <laughs> you're you're on the college end. I'm on the high school and trying to encourage my students to pursue the humanities, and they and their parents are driving them toward a job. You know, it's our wonderful STEM society. Yes. And I always tell them you can't have a heart with, uh, or you might have the heart, but um, you need a brain, you need a, what is it, STEM. You need a heart as well. And I think, I don't know who came up with it originally, but heart is like humanities, ethics, art, rhetoric, and teaching. Mm-hmm. It's like you, without all of that, what, what good is, you know, great, you want to be an engineer, but are you going to make something beautiful? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and um, and the other thing I, I, I thought he tied it. I t- I thought he tied that whole discussion really well to the current political environment, and mm-hmm. so the kind of degradation that he illustrates so 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 eloquently. I wish I was half as eloquent as he is <laughs> um, uh, about of our political life. I think he makes a really good case for it being tied to this sort of lack of attention to these traditional humanities uh, approaches in our higher institutions of higher education, even in perhaps particularly in our Christian ones. Oh yeah. And you know, we can't, we can't exactly blame Christian colleges. We've got to blame, we've got to blame education as a whole, honestly. Yeah. Because we're not, we're not teaching our students that it's, I don't say it's acceptable, but we're not teaching them that it's okay to ask the big questions. Yeah. At least that's, that's what I'm seeing in, in my area of, of the United States that everything is focused on what course do I need to take to get a degree that will get me a good job so I can have a large bank account. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and is there a highlight for you of the, of the discussion? He said it once or twice, but that, um, along the lines that, the human, not the humanities, but that evangelicalism, much like the nation, is divided. And I know that sounds like an awful lead, but it really does set up most of what we talked about. Yeah, absolutely. What a what a great mind. Um, that was a great conversation. I really enjoyed that one. That was. I mean, I was I was for most of it was in still in shock that. <laughs> it all happened. And stuff like that. <laughs> it was a long time in coming, but we made, I it know up. meeting, meeting this person that we've, that you and I and Jordan have talked about and read and followed. And then it's like, uh, yeah. Star yeah. shock. Yeah. It's like you and, um, and the, the cryptozoologist. Ah, uh, yeah. Lauren. Me and Lauren Coleman. Yeah. That was, yes. Uh, definitely... Which I just listened to that this morning. That was, that was fun. That was, <laughs> we, we had an early morning bake sale and I was making hot chocolate this morning, listening to you all talk about cryptozoology. It was great. <laughs> That's a little dream come true for Danny Anderson there. So that was fun. Um, well, Jay, thanks a lot uh, for joining us again. Uh, you know, you're always welcome on this show. And uh, for those of you listening at home, uh, Jay, we have plans for a few episodes here in the future. Jay's going to be stepping in on. Um, so uh, get used to him. He's here for here's here to stay. So um, Woo-hoo. 